everyone. My name is Sam, and welcome once again to the Over Manga Cast, or as we've long threatened it, the Over Echo Chamber Cast. Hello, Jacob. Yep, it's just the two of us this time. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt and Jay are off. Um, I think they got wrapped up in a tournament arc somewhere, so uh, we are holding down the fort on their behalf, and that is a good time for us to talk about something uh, near and dear to both of our hearts, games. Games are such a interesting both tool of storytelling inside of a story and outside of a story. You know, if you look at something like, for example, Dragon Ball, for the most part, when a hero is fighting a villain, it's relatively speaking a battle to the death. And, you know, there's a there's a sense of honor and fair play uh, in the sense of, you know, don't hit below the belt, you know, mm -hmm. don't beat on somebody who's already down that the good guys will adhere to. But there's nothing enforcing that. Some stories, on the other hand, will actually go in the exact opposite direction where there is a systematized structure to the game. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're here to discuss. Uh, games being used as the basis of stories and its inverse kind of stories being used as uh, the basis for a game. Yeah, the vehicle for a interactive experience. And uh, we'll, we'll save the big video essay word to start off with ludonarrative dissonance. <laughs> Well, we'll get to that once we eventually and inevitably dovetail out of manga into video games. <laughs> well, we, we promise it will be interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with this is uh, to kind of put on uh, my armchair anthropologist hat for a second. Uh, games have kind of been a long-standing vehicle of storytelling in human society. Uh, we already know that sports make for readily apparent uh, narratives in their own right. Mm. But uh, you see stories about um, wagers and games and, and uh, the tricksters that engage in them most often uh, all throughout history. There's uh, the famous myth of Loki's wager where he... Uh, bet that or he bet his head and ended up getting his lips <laughs> sewn shut because they he never said anything about his neck <laughs> and even to more modern day uh, folk tales about uh, heroes driving uh, steel against machines to uh, make a point the thing about the trickster hero character is it's it's someone who can operate in very nearly any context but something with rules is a really good example of how to really show off the cleverness of a trickster hero or mm. indeed a trickster villain as well. Because as much as it's a game, especially if there's some kind of like tangible life or not even necessarily life or death, but tangible serious stakes, the idea of bending the rules as far as they go um, not even necessarily in the sense of actively cheating, but making a point of staying within the rules, but still putting yourself in an inherent advantage. That is one of the highest heights of cleverness. And trickster heroes are an excellent um, showing of that kind of cleverness. Because like, strictly mm -hmm. speaking, you can have something like a character with a weak power set, but using it very cleverly. And that has a very trickster hero vibe to it but they really shine when there's a rule set that they bend to their advantage. Yeah, because the restriction inherent within it breeds a kind of creativity. Uh, I, I don't know about 
you, Jake, but I'm certain that most of our listeners have uh, played a video game that gave too many options and you are struck with the dread analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you have so many options, your brain just kind of shuts down. So that in and of itself could be why uh, games make for such exciting narratives, because when the reader or when the person consuming the media knows the bounds that the characters have to play within, basically puts us directly on the sidelines where we can uh, observe and scream excitedly when someone <laughs> does some when someone does something tricky. It limits the options to a degree that you can at least try to guess, and it 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 can in many cases be easier to follow. Of course, when it's done well, there is the aspect of a story can uh, set up a rule set and then um, just break it. <laughs> which, yeah. Which when which when it's not really done intentionally can be a pretty serious problem. There is sort of a way where you can do that right but you really need to like do that think about it from the start and play it up you know reaching the point where the rules get tossed out the window and it's suddenly a free-for-all can be very cathartic as Mm -hmm. a storytelling device because now all the like tension of oh we gotta stay within the bounds we gotta play the game it's suddenly just gone. Funnily enough, I, the 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 thing I immediately think of is to a large extent that is almost all of the positive and negative that I felt about pl- our last reading <laughs> of Platinum End. Uh, that's exactly the whole thing because like it doesn't really have to be again and you know matt in that episode go check out that episode mentioned that you know maybe it is always supposed to be a death game and and it not needing to be a death game is part of another layer to the story but strictly speaking at its face value it doesn't need to be a game so you know everybody's being clever and playing within this particular rule set and then at the end when they're in their final battle with metropolyman it's like Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not stabbing you with the red arrow anymore. I'm just holding you down so someone can shoot you with a gun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's that exact thing. Uh, My personal favorite example, uh, it's outside of the manga space, but in the Dresden Files, uh, spoiler alert for like book number 17, (laughs) I think. (laughs) It's pretty late in the series. So if you haven't read past changes, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. But the big climax of Skin Game, where the main character himself screams game over, pulls out his trump card, and then it all kind of devolves into a madcap slurry of violence that goes right up until the end. These are all example in a platinum end dubiously, but these are examples of that sort of thing being done right. But there can also be the case where you have you have a particular rule set, you're you're playing the game, and then someone just overtly breaks the rules and it devolves into chaos and it's not satisfying oh they're playing rock paper scissors and then someone else pulled out gun it's like yeah one of the best examples i have of this is this is also slightly outside of the manga space i think this also has a manga but i haven't looked that hard for it the series bakugan um Mm -hmm. i thought that the first season was an admirable attempt at basically doing beyblade right which i've always referred to beyblade as all the worst parts of pokemon and all the worst parts of Yu-Gi-Oh fused together so um, you're right good beyblade is kind of what i consider bakugan (laughs) 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 which which it's like 
okay, fine. This is a good kid show to sell toys. I'll, I'll, I'll sit down with this for a little while. But my God, I remember a second season episode made me quit the entire franchise cold turkey instantaneously because there was a character who had, via losing a wager, had to work with the bad guys. So they forced her to fight 2v2 with one of the bad guys against the two good guys. And there was a whole thing about, like, her allegiance being uh, questioned and stuff like that. It's like, you know, would she be on our, our side if we, you know, rescued her or whatever, and now she's fighting against us. And it starts off really clever where it seems like she's, you know, because Bakugan is, is is gamified combat. And honestly, Bakugan is actually kind of an example of... Uh, uh, <laughs> What are the rules of that game? They never really tell you, so they can kind of do whatever the hell they want. But the way they initially present it is she is intentionally making extremely aggressive plays that would be that are fine from her perspective, but bad for the team overall. And I'm like, oh, that's really, really clever. She then rounds on her teammate and starts attacking them with absolutely no change in the circumstances and then the game just stops and the heroes run away with the character whose allegiance was being questioned and it's like no you don't get to do that no part <laughs> of the game said you were allowed to switch sides like that if you could just do that why the <laughs> were you there in the first place why are we even playing this game why do we have rules if you're just gonna ignore them and like that's mm -hmm. sort of the double-edged sword of games Though that does bring up an interesting aspect of gamified stories, which is how do you ensure that the bad guys even play the game at all? Because that's yeah. a really important factor in storytelling. Because it the uh, participating in a game implies an inherent sense of honor, and unless you're writing a magnificent bastard, uh, most villains are you know bad guys because they don't really have a sense of honor and will do anything uh to win and why should they indulge you in your card games on motorcycles <laughs> <laughs> to to temporarily go back to the Dresden files one of uh, the reasons it works in that is because one of the themes of that story is that while someone can have a lot of power power comes with it responsibility I guess who read a lot of spider-man as a kid <laughs> And responsibility is its own kind of chain. And so if you don't use your power responsibly, the power can literally just go away. It'll say, no, I'm not working for you anymore. Mm. That means even the most dastardly bad guy has to at least play within the restraints of his own rule set. And one of the most common ways of keeping bad guys honest is by tying the the ability to do things to playing by the rules. It's also mm -hmm. a really good way of stopping cheaters, uh, because if you do cheat, then the game will just punish you, either by auto-losing and, you know, you lose whatever you were going for, or in some more serious cases, because for some reason death games almost always get gamified, you'll just die if you cheat too much or too hard or too overtly. Mm-hmm. The other, uh, the other really common way of getting bad guys to play the game is actually a kind of fun one that somewhat ties into trickster heroes a lot, and it's the idea that the uh, that the game is set up by the bad guy. This also is, yeah. is to some extent, I think, the reason why death games get gamified so often. Because they have some big cheesy villain who comes in and says, and now for my entertainment, you will do it like this. That's how you get your uh, Pegasuses. That's how you get your whatever the first villain of SAO is. 
Oh, oh my god, Pegasus is a deaf game villain, isn't he? Oh, he is. He absolutely <laughs> I is. I never thought about it like that, but <laughs> you're right. I mean, to a large extent, that's also how you get your dark Yugi, truth be told. That's oh, why yeah. he's the murder goblin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you get the murder goblin to play the game? He's the one setting them up. It's how he uses his magic powers. <laughs> you know, that's the synthesis of both of those ideas. I, I do also think that it's really interesting that um so often, and like, this is also something that I see a lot. There's a series that I really want to get back into called Zero Game. It's a manhwa. It's another one of those examples, but I see this so often where it's like, you have a, you have a death game set up, and then it's like, but who started it and why is so often a plot point brought up. You know, I mean, funnily enough, you know, like we made the joke about SAO, but like, the fact that they didn't answer that question is one of the principal criticisms of SAO is the fact that it's like you set up this big mystery and then did nothing with it. Like this is just such a common setup and I honestly can't off the top of my head figure out why, you know, you set up a death game. It People follow the rules because the villain is the one killing people. Yeah. And then well, figure out who the, I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> Well, one of the things about SAO in particular, and you can kind of tie this into the idea of just using your uh, world building as a means of forcing the bad guy to play by the rules, but SAO has the uh, misused, one would say, uh, benefit of being an actual, like, hard-coded video game. Yeah, yeah. So there are certain ineffable, without the use of, like, cheat codes or whatever or hacking the system rules that must be obeyed. It, it's akin to just having the laws of physics of your setting just say, no, you have to do it like this. You could even argue that that is part of how uh, it sort of works in Yu-Gi-Oh! The whole point being the shadow games. So uh, if you're not going to play the shadow game by the Millennium Items rules, then they'll just... Uh, they'll just they'll, off you. They'll either not work, or like if you just try to use them as a blunt instrument, they won't work at all. And if you try to cheat during the game, they'll just kill you. Best case scenario, you do get sent to the Shadow Realm. <laughs> I know it's not a place, Jake. Don't have to say. Well, no, no, that is the thing. The best case scenario is you get sent to the Shadow Realm because going to the Shadow Realm means if you cheat, you die. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where I think the fact that you mentioned like uh, the element of world building, there is a sort of like nice element of it sort of gives free exposition that you can explain what power sets are because games inherently are within a certain limit. But one of the natural things uh, inherent to writing a story about games is that all of the rules are based off of uh, what the author decides the rules are. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, even if it's an actual video game, like it's still, it's still from the perspective of like the person who created the space makes the rules of what you can or can't do. Yeah. But the danger in a story is that, you know, because it's not, it's not like a hard coded thing. You can like the author chooses what rules to bend. Cause like there's this element and, and this goes back into like the idea of trickster heroes and, you know, it's like what qualifies as rule breaking in a shadow game, for example, you know, and yeah, what's just what's just clever screwing around and what is, you know, something that's going to get you yeeted. It's ultimately up to God, in this case, being the author. 
that's actually a really good example of, of the case where the the playing with restrictions idea, the fact that there is this um there is this narrow space that you're supposed to exist in and the risk of stepping off out, like outside of that line because the author decides what the rules are and what the rules aren't. That's where you get problems like what happens in SAO, the thing I mentioned from Bakugan. And to some extent, I think one of the things that is it's so hard to just completely embrace the hammy, at least for me personally, it's so hard to completely embrace the hamminess from uh, Platinum End because I can't tell entirely if you're supposed, like, I can't tell that's how- that's what's being gone for. Yeah, I can't tell how seriously it's taking itself. I don't mm -hmm. know if I'm supposed to consider what the characters are doing as a clever bending of the rules that they're actually following or- characters in brief spurts just realizing kid i can do whatever i want so i'm gonna do the thing that wins <laughs> wait i can't just shoot him <laughs> uh yeah. you know and that's sort of the thing when you are using games as a heavy story element because like it or not games as a story element makes it near impossible to not notice the hand of the author and as a fellow writer, Jake, I'm sure you know, one of the things that you always want to strive for is to have the hand of the author be as invisible and lightly felt as possible. Yeah, unless it's unless it's a straight comedy that makes direct jokes about things like lampshading, you mm -hmm. don't want to be noticing like uh, the power set in a shonen is is vulnerable to this problem too. But it's like it's the idea of, you know, if this wasn't allowed, why was this allowed? You know, yeah. there, there are so many cases of that sort of thing. And it can feel pretty contrived when they're still staying within their same rules, but they've obviously set something up in a way that's going to make X outcome happen. Yeah, or or even uh, another worse case where, um, and this can either be the author is just done with this arc and cheats for the protagonists to finish off the villain. It's like, that goes against the rules you established, or a villain can be maintained for longer than uh, they should be based off of the rules by the villain, like skirting the rule set somehow. That can be really frustrating to an audience because it sort of signals to the audience that what the, the things that we're telling you don't actually matter because we will just ignore that element. And uh, not to not to bring up the, uh, the 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 forbidden rage topic, but because <laughs> I don't think I've conveyed it very well, partially because of my rage at the series, I'm gonna try to say it now. This okay. is the reason I loathe Record of Ragnarok because it does not do that. There's a thing I didn't mention in our second episode that was, it was utterly infuriating but very validating because it basically proved the point i wasn't able to make and i'm sad that i forgot to mention it so i'm doing it now you can't stop me well i edit the episodes i can't stop you but i won't <laughs> <laughs> i know where you live um but yeah the um it's in the fight between poseidon and the japanese swordsman guy whose name i forget and this is more of a visual metaphor as opposed to a rule getting skirted but it's the exact same problem and the internal rules of the of the manga will just do this too. It's just this is the easiest example of it. There was the metaphor about his sword reaching the bottom of the sea. Mm -hmm. And it kept showing that metaphor that no, it's not at the bottom yet. No, it's not at the bottom yet. No, it's not at the bottom yet. And then at some point, about a third of the way through the fight, a third of the way through the fight, it hits the bottom of the sea. 
So presumably that means that the fight is about to wrap up. And then the ground crumbles underneath and keeps going for another two-thirds worth of that fight. Like, why are you showing me this visual metaphor if it doesn't literally mean anything? Now I don't believe anything that you present me. And when it comes to games, that's the same problem. That's the same risk that you bring to bear with this. Because if you say you can only uh, move your piece in a, a knight's move L, and then someone with no explanation does a pawn capture with that piece without it being explained that that can do that, then the, like, why are you even having the rules if you're not going to follow them? Mm -hmm. And it it's such a quick way of getting someone to just depart. Yeah. Well, you know what they say, Jacob. Screw the rules. I have money. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Yu-Gi-Oh! is not as bad about that as people and, say that it is. And we're going to take a quick break to get a drink of water before we get into some specific examples. And yourself. We're going to get into some specific examples after this quick break, folks. We'll be right back. <sighs> I did nothing wrong. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, folks. <sighs> okay, okay. Had my Snickers. I can be calm now. I promise. Mostly. <laughs> Hashtag non-spawn, but I'm glad to hear it, Jake. <laughs> so since you are now uh, newly revitalized with the power of candy. Uh, jokes aside about me and, and my relationship with mostly how other people see Yu-Gi-Oh!, there is a lesson to be learned relative to Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, I think that most of it is a marketing problem, not a problem with the story onto itself. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a important thing to, when you look at the specific example of Yu-Gi-Oh, the ways that the storytelling can be done right, the ways that it can be misperceived, and uh, when, you know, the misperception is actually accurate, it's just it wasn't originally intended, how it can go wrong. Because this is actually a really good example of the thing that I noted about the authors um, having total control over the rules. If you go by the manga's rule set, there's, as far as I recall, no rule breaking except for, I think, Bandit Keith, um, who literally has cards up his sleeves. Oh, and Kaiba also does that with the um, in, his, in his introduction. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> literal cards up sleeves i forgot about that <laughs> and other than people pulling nonsense like that when it comes to like you know hey did you just summon a bunch of monsters in one turn like that's that's so mimetic and i think most people at least on an intellectual level understand that that's a meme not actually a critique of something that either the anime or the manga did wrong it's almost like it's from an abridged series <laughs> <laughs> almost but like there there's this thing about how Yu-Gi-Oh basically has like i think four rule sets at this point it has the manga rule set it has the anime rule set which is significantly more restrictive on what you're allowed to do it has the re original real world rule set which is very similar to the anime rule set but with a couple of changes and then you have the current rule set which is 
even more restrictive. And I can't help but notice that a lot of times when people call out Yu-Gi-Oh characters for cheating in various cases, if you look at the manga, the manga actually gives you the entire rulebook. It's all one paragraph. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very simple game. And people are probably thinking about the real world, real world experiences they had with the, you know, the actual rules for the game that were, you know, made were made for that were made for a saleable product. Yeah, saleable product after Duel Monsters became the wildly popular aspect of Yu-Gi-Oh that it was or that it is, that it is now. Yeah, and the element of Yu-Gi-Oh that I think is a really good example of the ways that you can like like I think Yu-Gi-Oh did it right, but that factor that there's basically like four or five different rule sets for Yu-Gi-Oh that all vaguely look like the same thing, but like there's like insta lose tier cheating things if you Mm -hmm. swap rule sets um it actually shows the pitfalls of this sort of thing because the game's rules are actually in the manga extremely simple the the rule book in in the real world is is pretty beefy but again the manga it it it's a paragraph the super expert rules that are the ones that the anime was based off of and the anime later created the real world rules the super expert rules is a paragraph that is about less than a third of one page. Yeah, um, I remember. I remember the old strategy guide I had was like one fourth talking about actual rules, like one mock game between fake characters, and then a whole bunch of ads for cards <laughs> disguised as deck building advice. <laughs> I've, I, I had a few of those. I won't lie. <laughs> The thing about Yu-Gi-Oh! is that the game itself is not particularly complex. Its base rules are actually super simple. Um, and I think actually the uh, Death Tea arc really shows that off because there's not a lot of wiggle room that the characters have. That's the reason why the Blue Eyes White Dragon is so powerful because it's a giant stat stick. And there's not a lot of rules that allow you to get around that. What makes mm. Yu-Gi-Oh! complex is that the cards have their own unique rules, and that's how all card games work. Um, you know, the the text on a card is always rule-breaking text. It breaks the rules as written. That's why it's on the card, because the card has the unique ability to break that core right. rule, that system rule. Um, and, and, not, the, and not many things had removal that could deal with just a big stat-stick dragon. Yeah, that that didn't exist at the time. So, that got introduced. But like here's the thing, this is this is both the double-edged sword, the good and the bad of the fact that the author makes the rules of the game. I think it's super freaking clever that the original Duel Monsters rule set is extremely simple because it allows for a lot of fluidity in how you pace out the actual battles in the manga itself, but it means that if if an author using this idea ever gets into a certain situation, and this is something that the anime hyper overemphasized and is where this meme comes from, but I can just top deck a card that the audience didn't know existed until now. Now, the way that the manga presents it is more that, um, because uh, you can actually read the text on the card in the manga, so you know mm-hmm. that they're actually doing what it says on the card. That, um, that was always the thing that weirded me out because my first experience was the dub anime. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. How do you know what these do? Yeah, it, it seems like they're just making it up as they go along. You know, and to some extent, there is things like uh, <laughs> flying monsters are strong against ground-based monsters in this episode, Joey. Like, there were cases like that in Yu-Gi-Oh! I won't pretend that's not true. But yeah. 
generally speaking, the cards follow their own rules, but like sort of like the the core idea of Yu-Gi-Oh! as a game is that everything is broad enough it can combo into something else. Mm-hmm. But the more the more narrow you make the rule set, the more impractical that sort of thing becomes. And that's where that's where this idea that Dark Yugi is cheating because he's just top decking everything he needs that that wasn't even in his deck until two seconds ago. Like that's where that idea comes from. And it, mm-hmm. you know, not not for nothing, but Yu-Gi-Oh! is actually a really good example of how to do this kind of storytelling right, the manga, and how to do it wrong, the anime, because the anime uses the more restricted version. Why would you ever use Catapult Turtle? You know, it makes sense yeah. in the manga because the rule set is more broad and there are more applications more for, yeah. for for different things. Um, but, you know, that's how that's how you can trip yourself up and you can see the hand of the author making something up for either the protagonist to win or the antagonist to extend the plot line. Yeah, and as cool as the scene in... I think the the seal of orichalcos thing was a filler arc in the anime right yeah it's it's anime exclusive as cool as that scene during the orichalcos arc was where yugi or yami kept drawing uh monster cards and beating (laughs) piss out of weevil that really famous scene yeah (laughs) monster cardo it's like okay buddy did you seriously have 12 monster cards in a row on on the top of your th- 12 plus because Anzu rushes it and stops it. Yeah, that's that effect that you're talking about where the ad- the adaptation in trying to more gamify it kind of it backfired. It, did, it didn't really shoot itself in the foot, but it like grazed its foot and now it's limping. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, like there, there's the element of uh, Yu-Gi-Oh as a franchise has doubled down on that element, but I'm not going to get another Snickers. Yep. That's that's no. <laughs> that's so we're the long and short of the matter. Yeah, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to something else that definitely does not incite anger. And it's a good thing Matt's not here. Isekai. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so so what MMORPG are we full dive VRing into? <laughs> Well, uh, I actually want to talk about Log Horizon, uh, which is it's not it's not exactly an an a little known uh, video game isekai, but it definitely came out during the deluge, during the, the oversaturation post SAO period. Yeah, during the craze. Yeah, it was a pretty good example of its genre. I like the fact that the main character, instead of being, you know, a combat class and incredibly overpowered, he was actually a a support class, which meant that he could do a whole lot more of the, you know, pushes up glasses, uh, flashing lenses, you know, Brock on the sidelines thing, but strategizing, strategizing and really impacting the plot at the same time. Uh, That made him a very fun main character. Uh, But one of the ways that log horizon kind of subverted the sao thing about death you die in the game you die in real life and i didn't watch the entire anime but this is of the bit that i did watch this uh arc always really stuck out in my head is uh the idea that if you died in log horizon then you respawned it at a respawn point because it's a video game Mm. the thing is uh, you had to physically go to another location in the world to set a new respawn point. And if a bunch of player-killing assholes happened to surround the spot where you respawn, then 
they literally will just spawn camp you until you, like, break and join their side. And so one of the major plot points was uh, the main character squad having to, like, fly off to go rescue a, a friendly who was trapped in that very situation. And I found that to be a very cool way of taking the hard-coded video game world and keeping the idea of respawning while still maintaining the stakes of death. Yeah, it's it's leveraging an element unique to video games to have a plot point unique to uh unique to Log Horizon. Mm -hmm. Um there there are so many aspects of video games that are not even necessarily underexplored, but that that just are so ripe for opportunity for storytelling in general. Mhm. Mm and respawning is a big one. That's why I love From Software games so much. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the games where you're ex not explicitly, you know, an undead destined... Not canonically respawning, yeah. Yeah, they managed to weave that in in very interesting ways. Uh, Sekiro has a very fun one where you are basically just cursed with immortality. And uh, <laughs> there's a very funny moment where after you defeat a mid-game boss and go to uh, talk with the, like, important character NPC that you're trying to go save, he's like, how many times have you died for my sake? One time? Three times? <laughs> and, you know, most players who have got, who got their ass beat pretty handily by Genichiro <laughs> before then <laughs> just laugh. Kuro then does say, uh, or more times than you can count. And, you know, that does kind of play into the same idea of Log Horizon, where it's like, okay, death isn't permanent, but what does dying that many times do to a man? It's sort of funny because there is that element of, um, you know, because, like, um, ReZero is another series that, like, it's not even... It's not even actually a game as far as I know. He's just going to another world, but it gets right. framed in respawn and save points. Konosuba has skill leveling trees. <laughs> it's not a game. He's not full day. Like it's literally just uh beating up on poor SAO. It's like, yeah, SAO deserves it, but it's already dead. <laughs> Look, the skill leveling system in Konosuba is there explicitly to make jokes about uh how hilariously overspecialized uh the three girls are. <laughs> Aqua, uh, full of the most amazing spells ever without the instat to use them. Megamine, with the most powerful destruction magic and no mana. And then Darkness, the tankiest tank whoever what did tank and can't hit something to save her goddamn life. <laughs> there is this sort of like strange element to trying to add video game elements to non-video game series. Because as we mentioned, having a, having a narrow rule set you know, shows what characters can or can't do. Yeah, and that's why it's so interesting to me that after the craze of, you know, video game isekais, we're still, I, I say after, it's not like we're living in a post-video game isekai <laughs> uh, world. Look at, the, <laughs> look, at the, look at the title of our freaking podcast and you'll understand the joke. <laughs> yeah, we may never be free of them entirely. <laughs> But it's interesting how uh, this idea of the video game fantasy world or the gamified fantasy world, to put it more broadly, has seeped so much into the culture. Like, I've not seen 
Black Clover yet, but from some of the, you know, review material I've watched, I have a basic understanding of the power system, and it is pretty gamified. It's got, like, it's got various levels to it, it's got specific classes, it's all, it all seems very stratified, which is when, uh, main character boy comes in with his main character powers and breaks the rule set that it's interesting. But, uh, and another reason why I do want to read it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see kind of, again, from, uh, from an armchair anthropologist perspective, how ubiquitous that has become. Yeah. And I can't help but find it funny because I mean, you know, not to beat the dead horse even more, <laughs> but there's sort of a funny element Jake, of I, Jake. I know it's your favorite hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Look, SAO isn't my favorite target. It's just one of them. Yeah, no, <laughs> SAO. It, like, like it, it's sort of funny because, um, like, it does the uh, MMORPG thing, and yet it being a video game doesn't really affect it very much. You know, the big thing about SAO, and I'm I'm borrowing this from, um, and I'm sure Sam, you know, uh, the the video I'll be talking about, but the elements of. SAO isn't even really a video game. It basically just <laughs> uses that aesthetic. If you actually, I've seen that Jeff do video. If you if you try to, uh, yeah, I'm I'm borrowing this from a mother's basement video, but it is really interesting when talking about how video game, how how game elements and stories interact with each other. That it is merely the aesthetic of a video game, because if you were actually to try to create like a real like like a playable version of SAO without the full dive without the death game aspects it would be utterly unplayable you know so it's just, like like you have something like um like black clover like konosuba like rezero that is explicitly not a video game but uses video game terminology mm-hmm. you know in part because SAO was so popular but also because it's just a good engine to convey information uh to a modern audience and then you have something that is explicitly a video game that's basically just using it as set dressing yeah you know that sort of that sort of um dissonance between something that actually is a game doesn't have to use its own rules whereas something that isn't a game has a tendency to stick to those kinds of rules more closely ironically uh but uh since we since we've been on about uh a lot of uh anime uh stuff uh i I thought this was a a manga podcast uh another really hey uh, hey hey hey. (laughs) matt's not here somebody's gotta say it um (laughs) another sort of interesting um way of looking at uh games and storytelling uh is two really good examples are episodes that we we have up for you chihaya furu and haikyuu in my opinion are actually a really cool contrast with each other I can also technically kind of, even though it's not a game, throw Blue Period into the Haikyuu side because, you know, this was something that I mentioned of Blue Period, um, which, you know, it, it conveys the same idea, but, you know, it's, it's you know, more directly with um, Haikyuu versus Chihayafuru, where the interesting thing about Chihayafuru is it doesn't really care if you know the full rules of Karuda or not. We mentioned numerous times in our episode that we really still don't know how this game is played. We just have like, enough context clues to get the tension. Yeah, and and that is using a game, you know, I mean, like some, something that I just realized we were totally remiss for not mentioning and we should have mentioned sooner. One really nice thing that you can do with either a sports thing, which is a game, which is gamifying your story or any kind of game that you're playing um is 
you can set the stakes extremely low so the protagonist is capable of losing. It's a natural mm. problem with a lot of battle shonens that if the protagonist loses, they die. So they have an inherent level of plot armor unless the author is really clever about how they work around that. And it's doable, yeah, it's... and that's where the good shonens come from, but it's a challenge. Yeah, and that's... Uh... And we do bring it up basically every time there's an on-battle battle shown in, like, the last Blue Period episode. Yeah, and indeed, Chihayafuru and Haikyuu is something that we mentioned in, in both of those episodes, that these are really good examples of you can set the stakes super low, so you don't know, like, like the protagonist can still win. That's actually one of the fun things about Haikyuu, where... The, the main characters won a match they didn't have to win, and all of the narrative was pointing to it being a case where they'd fail, mm -hmm. but it was so much more hype because they won because you knew they could lose and it would be fine. Um, but the, uh, uh, the point I originally brought up these two for is um, Chihayafuru... Um, I've actually read a little bit ahead in Shihayafuru further into uh, than it's it's <laughs> I've, I've I've gotten a little bit better about reading things that I mean to. <laughs> Finally, Shihayafuru doesn't really seem that invested in teaching you how to play Karuda. I even looked up a video on the rule set of Karuda, and I have a vague idea of the strategy of the game, but not really. It's really more about the ebb and flow of how the characters are reacting to various things. Right. Uh, on the other hand, the thing about Haikyuu, and there are a lot of examples of this, um, technically Yu-Gi-Oh! falls into this category as well, but like Haikyuu is, is I, I think, a good contrast with Chihayafuru because Haikyuu expects you not to know the rules of volleyball. Actually, I saw a thing mm -hmm. about how uh, <laughs> volleyball is... might have been a dying sport if, in Japan if it weren't for uh, Haikyuu, as it turns out. Um, well, funny how media does that. Uh, actually, before you get into that, real quick, something I want to mention about Haikyuu and, you know, basically every sports anime and sports manga is part of the benefit of using a game that exists in real life you can look up the rules you can look up the rules and there's a certain amount of expected cultural osmosis of the basic idea of what it is supposed to look like which helps with aesthetic centering yeah, and actually, that's exactly what I was going to go into, because there's a particular reason I picked out Haikyuu as my example to set against Chihayafuru. And, you know, to a large extent, um, someone could bounce off of Chihayafuru uh, if they didn't grab onto the characters and... Well, I have no idea what Karuda is, so bye. So I, I feel Chihayafuru, it, it does it with intention, and I think it works for the series. But like, you know, this is, it, you know, this is both an example of, uh, these are examples of it doing it right, but also it could be bad. Um, Haikyuu, on the other hand, is really, really good about teaching you not just volleyball rules, but volleyball strategy. And it, mm -hmm. the, the thing that I, I really like about it and the, the place where it differentiates itself from something like Blue Period or uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Indeed is that it drip feeds you information on the rules and the strategy chapter by chapter. It doesn't info dump you. And not even necessarily that it doesn't info dump you, but it doesn't even give you a basic rule set to read at your own pace or ignore and continue reading, ignoring it. Like it it integrates it into the story. And I think Haikyuu, one of the things that really got me invested in Haikyuu is it it instilled in me a passion for volleyball 
because I was understanding why they made the shortest team member the center blocker at the beginning of their match against uh, Abajosai. They explained it and it made sense. Yeah, and that's what the best of these kinds of stories can do is if they can give you just enough uh, of the thing that it doesn't become, you know, a boring exposition dump, it allows you to grow this really organic investment with the game. Yeah. And I mean, like, the thing is, to a large extent, any rule teaching that they do in Shihayafuru is that sort of utilitarian upfront information dump. And even though Blue Period is definitely trying to get you into art, it kind of does the same thing, but it does it more consistently. The reason I bounced off of Blue Period in the first thing is because I have garbage eyes. I can't draw. I'm I'm physically incapable of drawing a straight line. So that was part of the reason why I bounced off that very obviously good series. And that's the danger of trying to invest a reader into the game that it is. There are a lot of like card game anime and manga that are trying to sell you literal actual physical cards. Hi, Card Fight Vanguard. I see you over there. <laughs> and like to some extent, there's always a risk of if I don't get invested in the game, it, it, it it's going to bounce me instantly. But the, the nice thing about Furu is that it it never expects you to know the rules, which is the one extreme you can do. Uh, and then, you know, the other uh, the other uh, extreme is trying to get you directly invested in the sport. And I think Haikyuu is the best example I've seen of a manga getting me invested without me even noticing. It's really clever and, and one of the high points of Haikyuu as a story. Excellent. So we've done a lot of talking about uh, how stories that use games, you know, integrate them in various ways. I want to take a look at the other side of the coin uh, for another, <laughs> for again, not talking about manga on a manga podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, 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 I checked the box because Matt's not here, but... Uh... <laughs> uh, but another uh, shared passion of ours, uh, tabletop role-playing games. Uh, and to at least keep a bit of the anime aesthetic, I do want to talk a bit about uh, my dear beloved Exalted. <laughs> because part of the effect of TTRPGs is it's a collaborative storytelling game. You are using the rules that exist within the rule books of, you know, D&D &D 5e or 1D&D, &D, depending on when you're listening to this. <laughs> or uh, Pathfinder, it, uh, if you're a tabletop hipster. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> No uh, shame, I just see you there. <laughs> it's interesting to look at because a lot of these games come with their own lore, their own uh, settings, you know, built that the game rules are supposed to exist within. And that creates the interesting effect of you're often being thrown into this world and expected to create your own little story in it. To talk about Exalted without getting too deep into the lore of it, <laughs> this creates the interesting problem. Exalted is a game about escalating power levels and characters that are basically gods. And it's, you know, a power fantasy game. You're supposed to play one of these super mega heroes who goes off and does super mega hero things. A whole bunch of the NPCs are also like that. So why is the world in this current state of stalemate? <laughs> yeah. 
How has a single like Essence Ten Lunar Exalt not gone in and just kicked the ass of the entire realm up and up and down the Blessed Isle? I don't know. I'm going to uh, throw shade at the at the D and D community uh, temporarily. Yeah, uh, that won't go badly. Hey guys, stop trying to apply real world physics to game mechanics. <laughs> well, and 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 there is uh, sort of the thing I'm thinking of when it comes to like this topic is. There's a couple of schools of thought, and almost all of them have a tendency of getting really extreme really fast, and they're almost always really bad when that happens. Because, like, there's the element of, you know, some people will extremely strictly adhere to the rules. Like, you'll get the rules lawyers types. And, yes, the rules are there for a reason, and you should follow them. But, like, it's a tabletop game. Bending the rules to make a better experience is valid. You know, both extremes are wrong. You know, it's strictly adhering to the rules every time, all the time, no exceptions. Uh, at that point, play a video game. But um, on the other hand, like you should should know the rules, you should follow them and only uh, break the rules. Because the really interesting thing about something like D&D is it's a game. But also, and it, it, it's something that gets bandied about, but I think that there's like some level of people and even myself not really fully internalizing this, at least for me until recently, it's a storytelling experience. You're not playing to beat the boss like it's a video game. You're playing to act out a narrative, you know? Um, and, the, and the rules are there as a... Uh... As a framework. As a, as a framework for that narrative. Now, uh, I know there are plenty of people out there who will make the argument that D&D started as a war game and it only became a narrative thing in future editions, and that is valid to an extent. And that's where I kind of want to come back to Exalted. Um, despite how crunchy the Exalted can be in it, uh, and, uh, and I, I see you over there, Jake. Trust me, <laughs> it's gotten better. It's less crunchy now. That's the thing. I've only ever played a one-shot. I'm not the one that you need to defend it against. Matt isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm soft pro uh, Exalted, but I've only ever yes. played the one-shot. Exalted is built around the idea of being these mythical heroes, and mythical heroes, so long as they're sticking with their aesthetic, can just do whatever the hell they want. That means it is you know, at its kind of core, leaning more heavily into the storytelling experience. And I think that is part of the thing of, like, you don't want to examine the current state of the in-game world too closely. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Even worse than realizing that there are uh, NPC 20th level wizards out there in, you know, whatever D&D setting who can cast Wish and just muck up the entire universe. Yeah. Even, even worse than that is realizing... Oh no, there are some characters who can have literally every charm in this book. Oh no. <laughs> so Yeah, uh, and 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 there is there is also that element of like you can create your own setting within these. Like like it's very free, it's very open. It allows you to do it's a sandbox, really, is what it is. I don't know if it's just my personal experiences, but it feels like tabletops have been getting a big resurgence lately. Everybody say thank you, Critical Role. Three, two, one. <laughs> thank, thank you, you Critical, critical role. role. But it's like, you know, like there's been this resurgence of tabletops lately, but also like if you look at video games, like even video games that are literally called sandbox games where you're, you know, going out in your own direction, they're because the game is hard-coded and only has so many responses for you. I love KOTOR 
but the uh, force alignment system is pure binary and it's mm -hmm. the worst part of that game. Like there's a, there's a, you know, neutral in the force version of Revan out there that I think is more true to the actual story that you could do with the Star Wars tabletop RPG. But on the other hand, the problem with tabletop RPGs is that, you know, it can go off the rails. The foreshadowing might not be there because it's people making stuff up as they go along. You know, there's like this, um, there's this trade-off when you have tabletop games versus um, video games where video games naturally have more of a hard narrative that you're playing through as opposed mm -hmm. to making your own story. That's where we can kind of dive back into the the video game experience with I know there's a few ones close to your heart in this regard. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, just because we mentioned up at the top of the episode we had to make the Ludo narrative dissonance joke, um, I, I feel like just, you know, uh, doing our take on Ludo narrative elements. People throw it around as a joke, but um, I feel like it's a really interesting topic. You know, it's like, it's that highbrow sort of thing. But one of the things that um, when you're experiencing an interactive story, there's that element of your interactivity, whether or not it has an effect on the narrative is mm. such a big deal when it comes to storytelling. The diegesis. <laughs> the di yeah, the diegesis of it all. In the case of a tabletop game, you're free to have it be your own unique world and you don't have to worry and, you know, NPCs can react out, you know, to, to, to the bard seducing the 50th aspect of Tiamat in a row. And that mm -hmm. this is just a thing in this world now when people can actually react to it. In video games, on the other hand, you know, there's this constant pull between player agency and how they interact with the narrative. I have mentioned vaguely a couple of times, I'll, I'll come out and say it right now. I am a fighter plane nerd. Obviously, I love Ace Combat, and mm. sort of one of the fun things about Ace Combat and its uh, loving sidequel uh, Project Wingman in particular, because it dials this up to 30. 802 missiles. <laughs> uh, but it's like, it's the idea that you're, that the player character, from, from a in-game perspective, and like some people have actually criticized this, and actually a particular Ace Combat game, the one that shall remain unnamed, criticizes ace combat for this yeah uh but like you know like there's this this uh criticism thrown at like uh ace combat as sort of like a joke where it's like boy it sure is uh nice that you have allies that will fire three missiles and miss all of them but there's a reason why that's done and the reason it's done is because you know uh in in the context of ace combat if you're in the middle of an intense dogfight, you line the guy up and you're about to take your shot and then a an AI ally snipes the kill from you, that's really unsatisfying and annoying. So yeah. the, the game basically sets out, uh, you know, I mean, to some extent, this is also the kind of thing that you'd see in Skyrim where like the, the, the soldier NPCs or um, in um, Fallout, uh, you know, the NPC allies are kind of useless. They won't do anything on their own. They're mostly just there to absorb hits. 
Yeah. And a lot of cases, it, it, it's one of those ones where that can create that ludonarrative dissonance, that idea of the game is telling you one thing and the story is telling you another. Ace Combat skirts this by actually in-universe having your character basically be a bloodless freak of nature who <laughs> is canonically <laughs> a one-man squadron and people comment on that. But one of the dangers that video game storytelling has is that I have only ever experienced The Last of Us uh, secondhand. I've never actually played it. I've only watched it. And damn if it's not an absolutely excellent story. But it has a gameplay loop. How is Joel still walking past level three? He should be collapsed from exhaustion. He's not magic. <laughs> yeah, seriously. How does uh, Ellie lift all of those things that she picks up? <laughs> well, because you have the inventory space. <laughs> That's why. How come Link is only heavy when he puts the iron boots on? <laughs> or 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 any number of video games that um there's not a backpack on the character model and yet mm -hmm. you're carrying like 50 suits of armor 30 swords 25 axes seven crossbows and 12 billion bolts i'm on i'm on new game plus three of elden ring i feel this <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like there is that element of, in a lot of cases, people will just ignore that sort of thing. And in all honesty, even having just watched a game like The Last of Us, it doesn't ruin the experience. It's still just as powerful a story. But there are those, there are those uh, fridge logic moments where you realize, wait, that doesn't make sense. And it can take you out of the experience. It's a natural pitfall that any game, you know, I mean, not for nothing, as much as Ace Combat explains that, um, yes, Mobius 1 is literally a one-man squadron. That's a canonical line of dialogue that someone says out loud in the game. <laughs> uh, one of the things that the game never explains is you fire a missile, about four seconds later, another missile magically shows up on the pylon if you have that much ammo in your hammer space inventory i guess <laughs> and nobody really questions it like mobius one can't be a one-man squadron if he has realistic ammo supplies because he'd have to constantly be going back to uh resupply you know but you know what it's fun it's that push and pull between fun and what makes sense from a narrative perspective and the games that are able to blend that are some of the best Absolutely. As much as uh, I'm not a fan of the gameplay of a lot of them, I know that uh, that's a 50-50 that's a, uh, split on this uh, <laughs> uh, group. From games, say what you will about them. The well, look, way Jake, that... It's, it's okay to be wrong sometimes. <laughs> and Matt's not here. Gotta, gotta get in the quota. <laughs> gotta, gotta get it in, yeah. Um, but it's like one thing that you can't criticize them for is the way that they will tie the in-game mechanics into the narrative. Mm -hmm. The front game I have the most experience with is Dark Souls 2, and the hollowing mechanic is both a pure and total gameplay mechanic, and yet at the same time, it's a literal representation of something that's explained to you by characters in the story, and it's thematic at the same time. It's, it's such mm -hmm. a brilliant layering of both gameplay and storytelling. Yes, and it's the sort of thing that they bring into all of the games. You've already talked about Hollowing, so I'm going to move. I'm going to talk about the other ones. Mm. But in uh, 
perhaps the most dissonant one in terms of ludonarrative dissonance is demons souls because the way it's supposed to work is that if you die your soul gets trapped by the i forget what it's called it's the nexus you dumbass yell at me all you want demon souls fans i don't care (laughs) you get trapped in your ghost form and then if your ghost form dies you're dunzos for good Of course, uh, having only two lives in a game like that would not be fun, so the player can respawn as many times as they like. But it does create a handy way to kind of visually signify when an NPC is for realsies dead. Because there yeah. are several, there are several times when you kill the spirit form of an NPC. In in later games, uh, you know, Bloodborne weaves it into the idea of it all being a dream. Uh, Sekiro has uh, Wolf basically being (laughs) uh, immortal. And while it doesn't really tie into the respawn mechanic, uh, my personal favorite instance in From Games of using gameplay mechanics to tell a complete narrative and basically without any dialogue is in Elden Ring. Because in Elden Ring, there is an ending that... There are, of course, like seven endings. That's an exaggeration, but there's a lot of them. (laughs) And for most of them, you get a dialogue prompt at the end of it lets you choose which one you want to do, provided you did the requisite quest. You can theoretically have, like, f- uh, like four of them set to go at a time, but there is one where no matter what else you do, you are locked into this one ending, and it's kind of the bad ending. <laughs> it's, it's the Lord of Frenzied Flame. If you go and you embrace the Frenzied Flame, then that is the ending that you get. However, there is a way that... Uh, you as a player can decide, I don't want to do the Frenzied Flame ending. I'm going to do a different quest. And the way that you have to do with that is you need to find a way to basically repel the influence of this god. (laughs) And there is a way of doing that in game. It is basically a self-contained hero's journey. It involves going and helping another character through their own hero's journey in order to get a special item after defeating Melania, (laughs) admittedly. (laughs) But you get this special item after defeating Melania, and then you have to travel uh, very much outside of the familiar world into the crumbling from Azula and the Storm Beyond Time, defeat another massive boss, and then sit at the center of time to inject the magic needle that gets rid of the fire. Sounds like a From game. Yeah, and then you return to the lands between, transformed by your experience. It's an entire self-contained hero's journey Also, you can go back on the decision on which ending you want. (laughs) And I just love that. There's something to be said about multiple endings in games and how it can create such a personal story for somebody. Mm -hmm. The, The seamless weaving of gameplay and story is a really high skill in art of storytelling. Though, I think one of the really interesting things is this is something that I feel um, from games by a razor margin barely dodge, but they're almost on the line of doing this. It also matters how you present information to the audience because, and this is this is something that we can tie back to, you know, that thing that our podcast is supposed to be about in manga because, um, you know, this is like when you're when you're telling a story, you know, a little bit to some extent, this goes all the way back full circle uh, to uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! and the way that some people see Yu-Gi-Oh! 
Um, a game like Pokemon actually explains away a lot of the like bad faith criticisms that it's gotten over the years. I remember there was one point where PETA was like hilariously stupidly overboard about hating Pokemon because it's animal abuse. And like the games themselves answer all those criticisms. They just do it passively because lingering on them isn't fun. Yeah. Because we're trying to play a JRPG here. Well, yeah. I, was about to, I was about to say we're trying to play a JRPG, not answer the moral questions of the universe, but that's what most JRPGs do. Yeah, anyway, a lot so. of them do that. <laughs> Pokemon stays in its lane in that regard. Yeah, Pokemon very much stays. It's not Final Fantasy. But yeah, no, uh, uh, that's not throwing shade on Final Fantasy. It's just funny. <laughs> but um, like one of the one of the things I always see as an example of Pokemon is like Pokeballs don't mind control the Pokemon. And if you're mm -hmm. paying attention to how the narrative works, that should be obvious to you. But Pokemon doesn't actually linger on that fact. Fundamentally, the player character, because they are able to complete the game, has to be a good Pokemon trainer that treats their Pokemon right. So logically, none of their Pokemon are going to be abused and ever want to leave. So, you know, you're, you get your, you know, Charmander, Squirtle, Bar Bulbasaur, and a Pokeball... By the time it's a level 70-something third-stage starter, strictly speaking, if you had been abusing it, it could just break out of the Pokeball and walk away, and you could do nothing about it. Strictly speaking, if it's a Charizard, it can just fry your ass and fly away. <laughs> so, so like, there, there is this element of, like, the idea that Pokemon are, like, mind-controlled, forced, abused, you know, forced to fight is just not there. But talking about it takes away from the experience... So they don't. Which is supposed to be this, this, you know, journey of you making friends with weird little creatures and growing attached to them. Yeah, and, um, you know, like, there's the element of, um, you know, the, the idea of forcing Pokemon to fight. Well, no, and, and this is actually, this and breeding is actually another example where it's like, if you think about it, if you think about what what concessions were made for the fun of gameplay, it gets bad really fast. But like by pure happenstance, how about that? The player character never runs into a Pokemon that's a pacifist. But if they did, the player character wouldn't just wouldn't mm. force that Pokemon because like that's canonically I mean, how the player character acts. I mean, theoretically, uh, or extrapolating a little bit because because of the way random encounters work. Every time you step through the grass and don't get jumped by a Pokemon, you've passed by a Pokemon that's a pa that doesn't want to fight. But the game never explicitly says that, and mm -hmm. it shouldn't because have it shouldn't have to. Because again, that's a waste of time. It's and I think it's I think it's rather poignant that all of the most uh, fridge horror. Well, it's actually really fucked <laughs> up that this happens. Things are expressly uh restrictions or actions that distance you from the role play aspect of it it there it's things that put you in the gameplay aspect of it mm. like like nuzlocks fainting does not equal death in the game but in the self-imposed rule of a nuzlocke it is and therefore it can be considered heartless to you know sacrifice a pokemon or whatever but the actual game isn't acting like that or you know like shiny hunting through breeding or breeding for perfect ivs the game it, doesn't the game is not 
that that's you just playing a competitive team building game that's yeah. not that's not you endorsing puppy milling <laughs> Yeah, it's not endorsing puppy milling or incest, which is unfortunately a really good way of IV breeding. You know, <laughs> it, it's like that's not part of the game because that's not that's not how the story works. That's a outside element. Um, and it's one of those ones that I think it's sort of interesting because like like I said, from games are really good about integrating its story, but like one of the things that it does is it basically never says anything out loud. Pokemon mm -hmm. also does that, but it's sort of, I, I, I can't help but find it interesting. And I do think that this is a matter of the From Games being able to, both in a combination of subject matter um, and in a level of skill and craft, even though I think Pokemon is, is honestly better written than people give it credit for. Like there is an element of, they don't mention these things, so it does kind of open itself up to this criticism, but at the same time, it shouldn't have to explain it because it should be obvious. Um, it's really, it, it, it's really interesting the way that stories and, uh, how, how, how the, the gain elements interact with a story. And I mean, you know, yet again, even more so taking the entire thing full circle to a large extent, why does Team Rocket follow the rules of Pokemon battles? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like pokemon is a game about playing a game <laughs> it's not yep. you know it's it's more like it, it's more like a friendly boxing match or or full contact football is what a pokemon battle is it's not actually fighting you know mm -hmm. that was what the pokemon movie very poorly tried to convey um bust their heart they tried they tried they just failed but it's like that's what they were trying to convey it's not it's not an actual fight it's it, it's a competition it's a physical mm -hmm. competition you know it's like a boxing match or full contact football you know yeah. it's like you can get hurt but if everyone's following the rules and doing it right nobody should get permanently damaged uh yeah, ostensibly and... at least that's what's said of those sports uh <laughs> <laughs> uh but like that's sort of the idea behind it and since we've come full circle, uh, do you have any uh, closing thoughts here, Jake? I think one of the closing thoughts is looking at the, the, the sort of questions you can ask when engaging with a story, especially uh, stories that have games in them. You know, why is the game being played? Uh, what, what value does this bring to the story versus it just being, you know, free for all power, you know, powers being thrown at each other? Um you know, it like, 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 uh, and, um, you know, things that aren't games that, um, have these gamified elements, like, like what, it, what is that bringing to the table that not doing that would afford otherwise? Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course, on the other hand, um, you know, uh, looking at video game stories and seeing how they integrate gameplay, where gameplay, matters relative to the story and where gameplay is 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 actively separate from the story um like you know just injecting gamified elements or narrative elements into a game just opens up all of these really interesting questions to ask mm -hmm. and uh, to an extent being able to recognize uh story elements is what they are is and you know asking what does this bring to the narrative uh when done in good faith is you know the fun of doing literary analysis and when you can mix it in with the fun of uh with the fun of playing a game and the fun of gameplay analysis it can make for uh, a very uh, enjoyable combination yeah so uh 
Uh, literacy is important, kids. Uh, you're not clever for, for saying a thing is bad, actually, because a gameplay aspect that isn't actually part of the story. <laughs> because he summoned three blue-eyes white dragons at once. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. And as always, thank you once again for listening to the Overmanga Cast. Remember, you can find us on all of your social medias where we are at OverMangaCast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us on YouTube where you can like, comment, and subscribe where the episodes go up two weeks after they uh, premiere on your podcatcher of choice where we always enjoy a five-star rating. Thank you very much for that or whatever your equivalent is. And if you have something that you would like us to read on the show, you can tweet at us at OverMangaCast, send us an email, OverMangaCast at gmail.com, or go online to OverMangaCast.com, where you can listen to episodes and leave comments. We love hearing from you guys. We will catch you next Thursday.